Let's get our Ukraine update from Professor Ann Lee. But first, let's go to Professor Adnan Hussein for Turkey and Syria. Last time we talked, the United States wasn't allowing any of the relief to go to Assad's regime. It had to come in through Turkey, but they lifted that. Did that make any difference? Well, I think it's been partially lifted. There's still reports that it's very slow uh, for uh, aid to arrive through Syria, but uh, at least that's uh, something of a positive development. But of course, it's overwhelmed by the fact that the death toll has been climbing dramatically. I mean, you know, uh, and there's whole cities that um, residents think that... um, the undercount is dramatic. And so, you know, over weeks, it'll take weeks at this point to really assess the full level of the damage, but already north of 40,000. I mean, this is just a complete and utterly devastating tragedy that they also think that in terms of the Turkish economy, this is going to cause damage and devastation about 2.5% of total GDP. So this one event, um, they think, you know, 20 billion uh you know dollars of damage uh so it's 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 just um you know a terrible tragedy but at least you know if there are some positive you know developments in the aid picture dropping some of the restrictions and trying to move some aid even albeit slowly that is certainly um, something to be commended and encouraged and hopefully there'll be even more um, but the outpouring globally has has really been, um, you know, uh, a very, you know, generous response by civil society and lots of countries in the global south. And, you know, I had also raised the question about whether the Gulf countries were going to do anything substantial. And it does seem that there, you know, is a fair amount of aid coming from places like the UAE and uh, Saudi that have had their problems recently, diplomatically and geopolitically with Turkey. But um, they've put some of these things aside. And I think um, there's a sense that this is devastating for the region as a whole. So and when you have uh, my microphone is too hot. So let me bring me down. Uh, I think, as usual, there's some kind of problem. Uh, It's not just the the deaths and casualties. It's an entire country brought to its knees. Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um, uh, you know, this is going to affect all of Turkish society in one way or another. Um, we talked a little bit about some of the political potential repercussions. Those will, of course, affect the entire country. Mm-hmm. But the, the scale of devastation, um, you know, when you say 2.5 percent of GDP, that means that, you know, there's going to be on top of already the huge economic trouble that Turkey was in, you know, with its um, currency, you know, devaluing, uh, you know, the U.S. dollar. I can't I don't remember the exact statistics, but over the last six months or so, um, you know, the rate has not quite doubled, but it's it's pretty dramatic, you know, in terms of um, the exchange rate. 
Um, and of course, inflation has been like 80% for the last year. Uh, so on top of that, now having a huge uh, disruption and the scale of devastation in important agricultural regions. And Tur- that is really Turkey's, you know, Turkey is a major agricultural producer, produces a lot of food, um, you know, and the Anatolian heartlands are, a, you know, real breadbasket. And so all of that infrastructure uh, as well. And so much has been spent in development and building, you know, buildings that obviously, um, you know, weren't always up to code. Uh, and there's been a dramatic difference, you know, uh, between some buildings that were clearly built by less scrupulous uh, companies that profited by shaving, you know, on materials and, you know, safety protocols and so on versus ones that were built according to these new, you know. And so there's been a real huge backlash against the companies that have built uh, a lot of the even luxury buildings in some of these cities in southeastern um uh, you know, Anatolia that just absolutely collapsed. Uh, there's one building that they think, you know, was actually a luxury high rise in, in one of these cities that, that collapsed. Um, and, you know, they think more than 600 people died just in this one building. Uh, and so there's been a big backlash against the companies, um, construction companies that clearly have a bad record by the evidence of everybody's eyes, which buildings managed to, you know, withstand the shocks um, and were built according to the specifications after the 1999 earthquake in, in, in Turkey and which ones, uh, you know, weren't. What hasn't happened yet is really holding uh, those who approved some of these projects right. and the permits for them to account. Uh, but eventually, I think that is also going to happen. Right. Well, let's go to Professor Ann Lee. She writes over at the Daily Coes. I, I think we're almost at a year since the invasion. Marianne is not here, so I thought I would fill in or right. offer to fill in. Uh, It's been a busy week. The 24th is coming up, which will be the anniversary of the uh, invasion. Yesterday, the 34th anniversary of uh, the Soviets leaving Afghanistan. So there's uh, there's a lot weighing on these kinds of symbolic uh, milestones or whatever. The um, general consensus is that the Russian offensive has begun, uh, but... The 24th is supposed to be whatever <laughs> surprise, uh, something special. We don't know what it is. Likely, it'll be a probably a full barrage uh, a missile strike against Ukraine. Uh, it's still every day is air alerts. There's air alerts in most of Ukraine. Uh, the What's interesting is that the uh, discussion about Ceasefires and uh, negotiation has uh, has sort of returned. Uh, Al Jazeera is now starting to talk about that. So talk about the UN. So that's sort of interesting. Otherwise, it is uh, generally about the Russians trying to coordinate uh, attacks, and and they're having trouble doing it partially because they're just not well organized. The other side of it is uh, continued organization about what is essentially a tokenistic contribution of tanks from uh, the EU and um, even the Americans. Uh, So it appears as if there's more support, but the total number of non-Ukrainian tanks is going to be something around 100 to 200. 
and it's really, with all respect, a, a relatively tokenistic contribution. Uh, I, everyone is is uh, playing it kind of uh, coy, I suppose, about their their participation. Um, one place brought up a the issue that uh, will probably come up again. Uh, it was brought up by the Kiev Post on the issue of whether there there would be a South a Korea like solution for negotiation, and they were relatively ambiguous about whether anyone on any side would commit to it, considering how much ambiguity there is. The the Russians still are playing hardball. The uh, Ukrainians, I think, are probably willing to give up uh, Crimea. I mean, they would never admit that, but I, I think that's probably really? what's going to happen in the long run. So relative uh, who is to willing the, to give up Crimea? Uh, the Ukrainians. Really? Okay. Uh, that's only because it's it's really a tough slog for them to take Crimea. Crimea is, has, is traditionally a difficult place militarily to take over. And, and it's unclear that the, the Ukrainians have enough uh, force to do it. Um, they could, but I, I am, I'm, I'm going to say, at least from a tactical point of view, it's not going to happen now. Fortunately, um, greater range, intermediate um, range missiles are now being transferred from the UK and the US to the Ukrainians. So there's, there is going to be better rocket artillery that will probably uh, be the difference maker in in a subsequent Ukrainian counteroffensive. So with a, that's kind of the overall thing. It, it, it always seems like there's just simply war going on. But when you look at the casualty, um, the Russians lost somewhere around 12 to 15,000 troops. A million civilians died from their uh, their occupation of Afghanistan. And and that was over nine years of uh, the the current uh, uh, total for casualties uh, uh, dead and wounded is somewhere around 200,000 at the present moment. So this is it's just a very awful situation. And it doesn't seem likely that anything is going to happen. And um, uh, Jonathan and I were were having a conversation with with Walter about this. And I I was uh, offering the position that the only way that this this can end is if China and India decide to weigh in on the entire process. Professor Jonathan Bick, your thoughts, Professor Hussein, on all this? Well, I, I think if that doesn't happen, if India and China do not uh, weigh in on one side or the other, uh, you know, I, the U.S. should be pushing um, both Russia and Ukraine to end this thing. They should be saying to Ukraine, uh, this is not, you know, our aid to you is not unlimited. This is not going to go on forever because we don't think it's in your best interest. And uh, to Russia saying, you know, we are going to uh, continue to support Ukraine unless you come to the table and negotiate and come to a compromise. And I agree with Anne that part of that compromise is going is that Ukraine will give up um, any claim to Crimea uh, and probably that there that Russia will allow actual uh, voting to go on in the uh, provinces in the east and allow them to determine 
uh, their own future, whether they want to be part of Ukraine uh, with some autonomy or whether they want to be part of Russia. Uh, but it should be the people's uh, up to the people that live there to decide. Um, because we, th this is extremely dangerous. Uh, people continually underestimate the, the risk of nuclear war and it is distracting us from a much more important existential threat, which is climate change. Right. We can't afford to be wasting resources on wars when we, the greatest war we have is trying to survive and uh, reduce the damage that is going to be the result of putting too much carbon into the atmosphere. Yeah, Professor. Yeah. Oh, go I, I just let me close the whole uh, segment by saying there's uh, now uh, an increased threat that the Russians might try to seize Moldova. And uh, at the on the Russian home front, another person uh, fell out of a window. Um, the uh, finance uh, finance director for the Department of, De of Russia, uh, Russia's Department of Defense jumped out a window uh, yesterday. They should call Russia defenestration nation. Indeed. <laughs> There's enough to make a big list. Uh, Newsweek has the thing with the, total, the, the full list of everyone who's jumped out a window. Well, when you're defenestrated, does somebody throw you out or can you, is it, am I using the word properly? Well, I, the original source of it is, yes, people would grab you and throw you out. But uh, <laughs> it's a self Defenestration, I suppose. Auto defenestration. <laughs> I thought that's when you jump out of a car window. Uh, wow. At office hours Friday night, there was a fantastic conversation about Seymour Hersh's Substack yes. piece about the Nordstrom. Was it the Nordstrom 2 pipeline? Well, both actually. Yeah. Were, were both. Bombed. Do you yeah. mind talking about that? Because well, that was definitely one of the things I was hoping we would talk a little bit about uh, because it's a very interesting article, and the response to it has been also very interesting. Um, yes, you know, there's been a million hits on his Substack. Uh, clearly, everybody's been talking about it. Um, there have been a few, you know, several attacks against him. Um, as an unreliable reporter or for certain details within the story that um, are disputed on the basis of open intelligence uh, kind of sources about ship movements and, you know, uh, air, air, you know, um, tracking and, and so on. Um, but what is really more astonishing is how, clearly important this article is and yet it is not actually being talked about in the major you know mainstream media like the new york times washington post um maybe now they might report a little bit on the controversy but they have not dealt with really the substantive allegations which may be based on a single source but uh, we know seymour hirsch has done an awful lot of reporting over the last five decades that are based on internal sources who are always anonymous and um he clearly 
has a lot of contacts and connections to the world of intelligence and manages to be one of the outlets for disgruntled, factional differences. Uh, they leak to him or they speak to him. And so it seems like there's a couple of things that are important or interesting to take from this. One is that clearly not everybody you know, let's just sort of stipulate that this did happen more or less the way he describes and that this accords with, you know, what many people thought at the time and their immediate reactions was that, well, this must be something that the U.S. or NATO, you know, has has accomplished. Um, clearly, not everybody was fully on board or changed their mind about the operation given the timing of when it happened, the reasons for why it happened, um, that initially it seems to have been planned and developed as a way to threaten perhaps uh, Russia before the actual invasion, but it was not put into effect. But then it was, uh, um, you know, developed for the middle of the summer, you know, in June when these um, bomb C4 charges were apparently attached to the pipeline underwater um, near this island uh, of Denmark's. But um, there was a sort of shift and a change. It seemed like it would be too obvious. There were some um, second thoughts uh, by the president, according to this article, about not doing it immediately after um, these exercises in the Baltic Sea, it would have been too obvious, uh, and that the president wanted to have it, uh, you know, basically on his timeline when he thought uh, it would be best to do it. But the logic of when it happened doesn't seem to make sense to everybody. Already, the uh, pipelines were, were closed, so they weren't, you know, moving natural gas. Germany was abiding by a kind of cessation of importing through this pipeline, Russian natural gas. And um, it's the logic didn't really make a lot of sense um, for why you would do this, you know, at this point. And so I think that's what's interesting is to think, why did it happen when it happened? And what are the consequences of that? Seymour Hirsch and a couple of um, interviews he's done about the article uh, suggested much more directly than he did in the article itself um, that this really had to do with trying to prevent in some ways, um, you know, Germany from having second thoughts uh, about uh, a severe cold winter, um, popular discontent and uh, suffering as a result of high prices during a cold winter uh, that they might waver and um, start letting the gas uh, flow and that this would weaken the U.S. position um in prosecuting this war against russia um or to repel russia from ukraine or however you want to think about it but you know this wouldn't be advantageous and so taking a proactive position to remove the possibility of um wavering in the nato coalition i think that's interesting which suggests that there you know might be fissures in nato but that doing so also is definitely going to have consequences, you know, in Europe this winter. I mean, there's going to be, and there has been a lot of popular discontent with the, with the, uh, you know, with the progress of the war. And that's why, as you know, Anne just mentioned, um, there are some 
hints of uh, either doubling down. So this is the Ukraine position is give us, you know, uh, tanks, give us, you know, F-16s. So, you know, they're looking for uh, a dramatic escalation in the arms that would be available to them. But on the other side, there is some caution about, uh, you know, how much can we escalate the situation? And is there going to be a need for diplomatic negotiations? Uh, that is, I think, the real question. And there is clear, there are clearly divisions. And this uh, leaked story that gives us the background on how and why um, Nord Stream, the Nord Stream pipelines were were bombed, suggests that there are elements in the national security uh, apparatus and community that aren't so convinced that we're the U.S. you know Biden administration is following the best uh, policy here. Um, so that I think is interesting. It's worth really discussing less so than the particulars of how it was accomplished and, you know, which group was involved. Right. Um, although that is notable that it was conducted by Navy divers with Norwegian assistance, partly it seems, um, at least to avoid having to report it to Congress and the gang of eight before it could be approved. And so it could be all entirely in the orbit of presidential executive decision. Um, but quite apart from the details of it, I think these are the strategic issues and questions about what does this, what does this mean? And the second kind of component of that is of course, just the response, the ignoring really of any serious consideration of those questions in mainstream media and merely attacks on um, his credibility rather than the substance of the article. So I think those are the two really interesting right. dimensions of it. Let me let me respond to that uh, just for a moment. That um, I I like Seymour Hirsch's writing, but it is true that in the history of his reporting, occasionally he weaves a problematic tale. That that there are a couple times when he really didn't or he wove something that was more like a conspiracy theory than an actual vi had that had a viable uh, a content for it. And I would say that the latter half of his career has had more of those. But that doesn't discredit what he's done, because, as you say, he's he has very good contacts. And the reason for his reporting it, I think, is partially because there are differences or fissures in the intelligence community who have their own particular um, axes to grind. Although I, I, I like the idea that it was woven in a way that wouldn't have to be accountable for uh, the authorship of this this problem. But similarly, and this this raises some other things that we've talked about before, like Professor uh, Kachanowski, who talks about the Maidan uh, sniper stuff. I Oh, no, I'm I think he tells a good story. I just think that there's there could be other and, and this is not to expand the conspiracy. It's just that there's another sort of side of it that could have been done. So similarly, I, I think that in the Kachanovsky case, the GRU or the KGB could have put a sniper up there and changed the entire authorship problem of who was behind what sniping. But that's just me. Similarly. And the the Cy Hirsch story, the opposition that comes that's written by some other folks is that it it rather than a I I fall on the side of that somebody on the EU um you know it MI6 somebody 
Swedish intelligence, somebody did it. And we can blame the U.S., but it could be several other potential authors. Now, the other side of the story is that the Russians did it. And it's not like they they did it in a way that would cause them serious damage. It it does create a delay. It's going to take them several months to repair it. But it's nothing like a, a kind of major, a major kind of damage. Um, so I, I would say it, it, it's likely that it wasn't the Ukrainians, but could have still been the Russians. And one of the things that you did at office hours was convince me that somebody, at least uh, in the EU, maybe Biden, ordered it when I asked how bad was it environmentally. It seemed unimaginable to me that we would blow up a pipeline because I went right to Deep Horizon and the Gulf. Indeed. And then I asked and you told me the environmental impact on blowing up these pipelines. What are the environmental impacts? Well, you have a methane, a methane leak, but it, it, as I said, it's, it's negligible rep- relative to the output of methane that gets uh, burnt up in refinery operations. Um, what, what I think is problematic about the whole story, including the Cy Hirsch narrative, is that essentially he, he catches the Biden administration um, uh, Biden mis misspeaks or says something a little bit too bold about that we're going to take out Stream, and then Victoria Newland sort of backs that up later on, and having had that out there in the open leaves an opening. This thinking in a hybrid disinformation uh, campaign style that the Russians blew it up because they they now could screw with the the U.S. because they admitted that they they were the chief, the uh, the, the main culprits. So Lane in the chat room says there was nothing in it for Russia to blow up a, a pipeline that they benefit from. Well, the issue is that revenues, revenues are generally higher with less output. And also there is an issue about, and I can't remember how this works, but I think if you're transporting um, the liquids, not on the top pipeline, but by ship or whatever, the tax, um, the charge, the, there's a difference in how it's priced and whether there are taxes on it. And I think that's that's another constraint on it. It, it, it is a way of constraining supply so that they would get a greater short-term profit. I see. But they could constrain supply simply by leaving it off. It was off. They could have left it off. They they control the sources of the pipeline. They could have shut it off there. You know, I heard an excellent interview uh, with Jeffrey Sachs, who came out right away when this happened and said, look, the U.S. did it. This is what makes the most sense. Of course, we don't completely know 100 percent, but here's the logic. Here's the statements. Here's the way it's fit into the geopolitical ambitions of these neocons for a decade. They've been against the Nord Stream projects. They don't want Russia to be providing, you know, they don't want the Willy Brandt, you know, uh, 
you know, idea of German industry and Russian, you know, uh, energy creating an independent and integrated economy. They just don't want that. They don't want your Eurasian integration. They want it to be within the orbit of the U.S., both militarily and economically. And so they have opposed these things, these pipelines before. So he has explained these very well. I saw a really recent interview with him on a kind of conservative, weird show, uh, uh, unheard from from Britain with a very skeptical guy who was trying to give all the kinds of scenarios that we've just heard about. Well, how do you know? Because couldn't it be this and couldn't it be that? And I think people should go watch that because I think it's pretty clear that, you know, this required a certain sophistication, a certain kind of organization, technical know-how. It needed you know, cover, it, you know, this isn't an easy thing to do. Um, there's only a few places, you know, a few countries that really could pull off. And of course, it wasn't even just the U.S., according to this story. It also involved Norway, who, by the way, you know, is which, by the way, is a country that stands to benefit. Not only is it a strong NATO, you know, ally, founding member has always been close in the orbit uh, of the United States, but is an energy producer, one of Europe's largest energy producers, mm -hmm. and now has doubled, you know, its export of natural gas uh, to to Europe. So it's like eliminating a competitor. So there are a lot of reasons for Norway, Norway to want to be involved in. Yes. In this. But, the, you know, the point is, is that really this uh, who really could have accomplished this? I mean, there's very few countries with the technical ability, the military, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> this, if this happened during these, you know, military exercise, who can set the agenda? I mean, what a perfect situation it was that you know, this Baltic uh, naval exercise uh, for the first time uh, has a special training on mine laying, <laughs> you know, that they suddenly, you know, establish. I mean, who can set the agenda for NATO naval military exercises? OK, it's going to be like the United States and close allies. So it and what what country would do this without the consent of the United States? Let's say they were technically able to do it. Right. Who's going well, to do true. that without? If, if I may United speak for States. Norway. Uh, I... <laughs> um, there, there hasn't been any anything that I've seen in the Norwegian media about if Substack. If someone commented that nobody over here is going to publish anything that's just been in a substack. So that's one reason why you wouldn't be getting picking up, getting picked up in the media. But um, there's just one flaw in the article from the Norwegian perspective is that he attributed Jens Stoltenberg, the leader of NATO, the former prime minister, being somehow uh, connected with NATO or U.S. intelligence when he would have been 16, so around the Vietnam war era which would not work so that, that was the only flaw in terms of the timeline on that just I, I, I don't just i don't disagree on agenda setting and a variety of other motives that are are more about disinformation and hybrid warfare because i think that that's part of it but as i said i think it's a sequential thing where the united states accidentally admits they were they were thinking about it the Russians go, oh, OK, so we'll blame them. Um, and and not that that I think that 
you know, uh, the Russians would think that far ahead. But I think that there are just other elements out there that can be part of the problem. Um, I don't know whether Wagner has the capability to do it or, you know, whether Eric Prince, for example, has. I mean, they have their own air force. Both sides have their own air force. I don't know what their naval assets are like, but it's clear that they have enough uh, capability to, to put two bombs on a on a under undersea pipeline. But that uh, I, of course, am spending it far too often to the conspiracy theory area. And as I say, I come down. It was likely somebody in the EU, likely the U.S., but I think there are more moving parts in these problems. Well, maybe there's more to the story, you know, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, there are other components and dimensions, but I don't think that those would be incompatible with assigning responsibility fundamentally to the United States. And if the United States, as Professor John mentioned, if it was done without the knowledge of and participation of the United States, wouldn't there be a much bigger outcry Oh, about yes. we have to find out who's at the bottom of this, who's going rogue and destroying international infrastructure of massive geopolitical <laughs> interest. <laughs> you Indeed. know, and but no, instead, we're going to really just sort of leave it very vague, um, <laughs> have the Swedes do their you know, immediate uh, kind of investigation of the scene, but then refuse to reveal or divulge any information <laughs> from it because it pertains to national security. Mm -hmm. If this had happened because of some rogue element, there would have been a much bigger inquest that, you know, journalists would have been much more keen on finding out and investigating. There'd be constant questions about it. We've heard nothing over the last few months about this major you know, act of the president himself said is that it was an act of international sabotage. He's correct. <laughs> it is indeed. That's what he managed to accomplish is a major act of sabotage. And the reason why it's not being investigated as an act of terrorism against, you know, uh, energy infrastructure, international energy infrastructure is because, you know, everyone kind of knows already that the U it serves the U.S. interests and there's absolutely no interest in the media. Now, think of if Trump had done this, okay? <laughs> because it didn't really, in some ways, this is a real act against the allies in Germany. I mean, it's really the EU and Germany in particular that is suffering the consequences of this headlong push of the United States. So I think one of the other interesting questions is, is when they had that meeting, you know, uh, in February before the invasion took place, where Biden said that the North, if Russia invades, Nord Stream, you know, will end. And, you know, when he was asked, well, how in the world are you going to do that? You know, he sort of coyly says, you know, believe me, we'll be able to do it. Well, they had concocted the plan and they knew that they could uh, undertake this. They had that uh, an idea of how they would accomplish it. But what's interesting is that's with Olaf Schultz by his side. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just got to emphasize that, Anna. President Biden said <laughs> that if Russia invades Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 will not be functioning anymore. <laughs> he said it in front of the public. He and said it in front of the chancellor of Germany. And after he said it, and he went out of his way to say it, he said it twice. This conversation had moved on and he brought it back to that so he could say it again. And after he said it 
twice. The chancellor of Germany said, we, of course, will cooperate with our NATO friends and the United States. The case is closed. Of course, the United States blew it up. Of course. I, there's no reason for Russia to destroy its own pipeline. There is great amount of reasons to believe that the U.S. would do it. It serves all sorts of national security and economic reasons and, ben and provides benefits for the United States. It was saying to Germany, you're not going to go back to buying Russian gas. Get your mind off of that. Buy our gas. Yes, it's more expensive. Yes, it makes a nice profit for our companies, but it's reliable. So just get it through your thick German heads that you're going to be buying our gas or you're going to get it from someplace else, but you're not going to be getting it from Russia. So now the well, question, though, that's why I think the interesting question is, why did it happen when it did and what are going to be the consequences of it having taken place? But now, even more importantly, these revelations, of course, there will be some ambiguity. It'll be contested. But the question is, uh, I think, is this going to harm U.S. relations with uh, with Europe? You know, will I, there be backlash? Will popular discontent with the consequences of all of these high energy prices and a continuing war and a feeling, perhaps, that for the U.S., in rather callous, cold calculation, is not acting that much like an ally, but is pursuing its particular geopolitical agenda and also benefiting in many ways from this with, you know, relocation to the United States of certain or relocation to the United States of German, you know, factories and companies because the energy costs are just too high, you know, uh, in, in, in Germany, you know, so what is that going to do? Uh, are, you know, um, you know, the Europeans basically just so cowed that they're willing to accept anything that the United States decides on their behalf, even if it's against their interests? Or are they starting to question, OK, we wanted to have solidarity with NATO, with Ukraine. We're concerned about Russia um, and so on. So that was fine. But as it drags on. And as it looks, you know, like it's going to be a very costly war, the escalation is starting to take place with the sending of tanks. I mean, Germany tried to get out of sending tanks, but, you know, the U.S. basically bullied them into it. And then they tried to drag the United States like, look, if you're pushing us into escalating by sending, you know, leopard tanks and you got to send tanks, too, of course. You know, the U.S. agreed and then said, well, but, you know, it's going to take us some time to do it. <laughs> you know, We're not going to send current tanks. We've got to build them. So, you know, two years from now, that should alarm the Europeans. And I think maybe it has alarmed them to some extent um, to think that this is going to drag on. This is going to end up being very costly economically in human terms. And, you know, that's what's interesting now is to see whether um, the revelations show that there is a kind of willingness to sacrifice uh, the interests of their close NATO allies to pursue U.S. geopolitical interests. Professor, I, I think that's I, I, a good... I, I, well, Professor Lee, you were going to say something. I don't disagree with that, but I would say that Nord Stream is only one or two pipelines. There are four and five. There are major pipelines that go across Europe, across Ukraine, and none of those pipelines have been attacked. Now, that's just one thing. The second thing is there is a major pipeline being built across the Black Sea to Turkey. Uh, and, and these are 
other the, the, there's just a lot of moving parts here that I, I I agree with you that that it's probably and that there, there are these pieces of information. But I also think it's an opportun- opportunistic moment for these things. And of course, there's much more complicated element about, you know, liquid nat- natural gas and and uh, Greek hulls carrying crude oil and a whole bunch of other things that are make this entire story much more complicated. Well, more there are more dimensions and actors, but you ca- can't deny from the European perspective that the Nord Stream pipelines were very convenient and oh, yes. provided very cheap, you know, gas. These new projects have to be built. Maybe they'll come online. However, Turkey is obviously going to benefit and it's not going to just, you know, these were direct from Russia to Germany. Right. So there weren't any intermediaries. That was one of the important values geopolitically Mm -hmm. of the Nord Stream, you know, pipelines is that they skirted Ukraine and all these other Baltic states and so on. So that uh, Russia and Germany and it allowed the Germans and and other companies, the four companies that are the minority stakeholders of, uh, you know, the Nord Nord Stream company. I forget the the name of the company, but uh, the 49 percent that they have split between four companies, they were able to sell, you know, uh, natural gas at a profit because they were getting it so cheaply within Europe. Right. If it goes through Turkey, if it goes through Ukraine, those countries are going to take some you know, of the proceeds and benefits and have charges for use of their, And as a result, it may be more expensive. So that's the whole point is that right now, natural gas is very expensive in Europe. And this was the cheapest source for natural gas. I was in Qatar for the World Cup. Qatar is expanding dramatically, not only, you know, in its, you know, oil production, but especially natural gas. And it's, you know, developing all of this huge, you know, infrastructure for liquefied natural gas. And they're, you know, planning to be one of the suppliers. But think of how expensive that is, is to ship it all the way from the Gulf. You know, we, you know, had the episode with the... uh, ever given or i forget the name of the tanker the huge you know uh oh yeah yes. that that yeah. that blocked the suez the canal suez, yeah. yeah that's where all of this stuff has to come through out of the gulf around up through the red sea and through the suez canal in order to get to europe um that you know otherwise it has to go around africa all of that costs the uh, you know Ever grand, I think, was the name of, of 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 it. It was very grand, very big big ship. So the point is, is this is the cheapest source, and all of these alternatives you're mentioning are starting to come online, and they'll be you know possible outlets, but they might be more more expensive than than this this has historically been in providing very cheap gas. And it it was a factor in raising the cost of energy everywhere in Europe and the UK. I mean, I, you know, if I was sitting in northern uh, England and this is going on and I have to go to a food bank in order to feed my family because the cost of heating my house uh, has quadrupled, um, I might be a little upset, you know, and the people in Germany in the same situation. Um well, apparently, um, high energy prices are uh, projected to push uh, an additional 140 million people globally into uh, extreme poverty as a result purely of the new costs of of uh, of energy. That's globally, but 
you know, people around the world are suffering higher energy prices as a result. And um, that's one of the costs of, of this of this war. And again, you know, all the resources that are going into all this maneuvering to benefit uh, liquefied natural gas uh, and, uh, you know, benefiting some suppliers and harming others. Um, those resources are not going into creating green energy and ways of dealing, creating energy uh, that is less expensive, uh, will not contribute to the climate crisis. And um will not contribute to wars. Um, we got to move on from this. This is just yeah. insane. Okay. In our limited, thank you for that. In our limited time, let's find out what Professor John wanted to talk about. Oh, gosh. Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> do you want the 10-minute version, the 15 or the 20? I don't know. I'm just wondering if Norway is going to be handing out a peace prize this year, given... Uh, probably give it to Biden, I imagine. Yeah. Oh, no, it's going to go to Zelensky. No. Of course. <laughs> Maybe they'll give it to Putin. I mean, the way they've been doing it in the past. <laughs> you know, we hope you'll end the war. So here's a peace prize. Right. Uh, Henry not Kissinger. a bad stratagem. Henry Kissinger, that's right. All right. Um, so in, uh, President Biden, last his, his State of the Union address, was that last week? It was a week ago, Tuesday. Yes. So he said that um, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset every five years, along with every other piece of federal legislation. Right. Um, so when he said that at the State of the Union, the Republicans went nuts and uh, some of them shouted liar. Uh, now, why did he say it? Well, he said it because Senator Rick Scott, a Republican from Florida, when he was the chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee last year, released a fiscal plan with a bullet point that said all federal legislation sunsets in five years. Not a liar. He was telling the truth. In addition, um, Senator Romney, who's a Republican, and uh, Senator Manchin, who behaves like a Republican, um, created the uh, Trust Act which is modeled after the Simpson-Bowles Commission that recommended deep cuts to Social Security in 2011. Um, and uh, fortunately, the, uh, the original uh, Simpson-Bowles was ignored and they didn't cut Social Security. Uh, but the, the two people, Alan Simpson and uh, Erskine Bowles, called this new bill, the Trust Act, important and vital because it's going to end up cutting Social Security, which is what these corporate hacks want. Um, for people who don't know, Social Security is financed through payroll taxes and interest earned on previous surpluses that have accumulated. The biggest source of funds from Social Security is a 12.4% payroll tax on earnings up to a cap of this year as of this year, $160,200. So that means if you earn over $160,200 in a year, you, you stop paying the social security tax uh, on income above that. So it's a regressive tax. Social security is a primarily a pay-as-you-go system, meaning that the benefits from, uh, for current retirees are paid 
for mostly through taxes on current workers. Now, in the 1980s, people in Congress and the president said, oh, we're going to have a problem when the baby boomers retire because they're going to be more people drawing benefits than contributing to the program. So they increased the payroll tax significantly at that point and created a trust fund. Um, And uh, by the way, in a recent interview, Manchin said on Fox News uh, that his legislation and Romney's, the Trust Act, could be used to secure a debt ceiling agreement with House Republicans who have threatened repeatedly to use the borrowing limit as leverage to push for Social Security cuts. Uh, And Manchin said he really thinks the administration will reverse course and negotiate with the Republicans, even though Biden has said he's not going to do that. So that's what he's hoping for. And I'm sure other senators uh, from the Democrats in the Senate as well. Um, So uh, Social Security does not contribute to the federal deficit because it's it's funded through this payroll tax. So it, it doesn't borrow money from the federal government to, in order to pay benefits. So that is a ruse, you know, saying, oh, my goodness, look at our debt. We can't afford Social Security. That's total nonsense. Now, there are different ways that we can address this uh, projected shortfall in Social Security. Supposedly, uh, in about 10 years or so, the Social Security uh, trust fund is going to run out. That is the excess that we've been accumulating uh, since the 1980s is going to run out. And uh, therefore, they may have to reduce uh, benefits. There's a number of things that Congress could do. One would be just leave Social Security as it is and fund any shortfall that it may experience because of the baby boomers retiring from general revenues, just like everything else in the government is funded just like the military is funded, you just borrow the money uh, until the baby boomer generation uh, is no longer drawing more than is going into the fund. You could do that, right? You have to pass a law to do that. Another thing you could do is uh, mint a coin. The legal basis for the concept of a trillion dollar coin arises from the fact that the United States Mint is authorized to produce platinum coinage without any restrictions as to the number of coins produced or their face value. In other words, the Mint could theoretically produce an unlimited amount of platinum coins, each one with an arbitrarily large value. Uh, By contrast, there are statutory limits regarding the amount of paper currency that can be in circulation at any one time, as well as limits to coins made out of other materials. But platinum is an exception. Okay, so uh, although distributing such a high value coin or coins might produce inflation or add to inflation. If it were exchanged throughout the wider economy, uh, those who are proposing the trillion dollar coin argue that this would not be the case if the mint only distributed this coin to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve could then deposit the coin in the Treasury, thereby reducing the national debt and postponing or eliminating the need to raise the U.S. debt ceiling. This would be an economically harmless way to resolve the debt ceiling debate uh, and uh, not allow the Republicans to cut Social Security. And some people say, well, this is a gimmick. And my response is, well, so is the debt ceiling. It's entirely arbitrary and it may be unconstitutional, 
So uh, that's not a, a reason not to do it. But my preferred way of dealing with this was uh, recently introduced in the Senate and in the House by Senator Sanders and Warren in the Senate and Representative Jan Schakowsky and Val Hoyle in the House. And it's called the Social Security Expansion Act. And it would provide an additional additional twenty four hundred dollars each year to all beneficiaries. So it would increase benefits and ensure the program is funded through twenty ninety six. So if we don't do anything about climate change, there's not going to be anybody around in twenty ninety six to collect Social Security benefits. Uh, so this would take care of this for the foreseeable future. Um, the bill would accomplish this by eliminating the cap on the maximum amount of income subject to the Social Security payroll tax above $250,000 a year, a change that would not raise the tax on 93% of U.S. households that make $250,000 or less per year, according to an analysis conducted by the Social Security Administration. Currently, earnings above $160,200 are not subject to Social Security payroll tax, which means that millionaires stop, stop contributing to the program later this month, right? If you're making a million dollars a year, you only contribute to Social Security for two months because that's the maximum. This is absurd, right? While somebody who's making $20,000 a year contributes the full amount for the entire year. Ridiculous. Um, so uh, Bernie Sanders said, our job is to expand Social Security so that every senior in America can retire with the dignity they deserve and every person with a disability can live with the security they need. Because a lot of people don't realize that Social Security also provides for people who are disabled and unable to work. So this is not only about retirees. Uh, the legislation we're introducing today will expand Social Security benefits by $2,400 a year and will extend the solvency of Social Security for the next 75 years by making sure the wealthiest people in society pay their fair share into the system. So what he's saying is make this just like the Medicare tax. Medicare tax does not end at an arbitrary uh, annual income limit, and neither does any other tax. Right. That's what makes the Social Security tax particularly uh, regressive. So what they're asking for really is to make the Social Security tax a flat tax, which is what Republicans and libertarians are always arguing for. But they don't do it in this case because it's a regressive tax right now, which is which means that you take more from people who are making less. Um, OK, so contrary to the claims of GOP lawmakers who are clamoring to slash benefits and postpone eligibility, they're actually talking about raising the retirement age, which is already unconscionably high in this country. You know, France is going into the streets because they want to raise the retirement age to 63 or 64 uh, current people. Most people in America, their full retirement age is not until age 67. They want to raise it to 70 or more. Uh, the latest annual Social Security trustees report showed that the program has two point eight five trillion dollars in surplus, enabling it to pay 100 percent of promised benefits through 2035 
90% of benefits for the next 25 years and 80% for the next 75 years. So social security is not in danger of collapse. It's not in danger of going bankrupt. This is all nonsense being used to cut this program, which is vital uh, for not only for seniors, but for dis disabled people. According to polling results published Monday by Data for Progress, 78% uh, of likely voters support the Social Security Expansion Act, including 85% of Democrats, 75% of independents, and 72% of Republicans. The survey was commissioned by Social Security Works and was conducted online January 27th to January 30th. Okay. This is the easiest and fairest way to resolve this issue is to um, get rid of the cap on, on the social security tax. It's easy. Kill the cap. Kill the cap, baby. Kill the cap. That's right. Give to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, and read Professor Ann Lee over at the Daily Co's. Her handle is Annie Lee. Always great to see you. Professor Jonathan Bick will be teaching The Twilight Zone. He will be teaching Columbo. That's right, sir. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> one final thing here. And you're also teaching Star Trek, if I'm not mistaken. Right? That is true, sir. Yes. Yeah. Professor Adnan Hussein is the co-host of Guerrilla History, as well as the Mudgeless podcast. Could you please tell us who your guests are? Well, um, uh, tomorrow... Uh, Friday, uh, we have a new episode of Guerrilla History kicking off a new series that I'm very excited about called Sources and Methods. And it's about primary sources and historical methodologies. And in this case, we're kicking it off with um, discussion uh, with a about a publication that has just come out, which is a collection of uh, writings by the Black Liberation Army. Uh, the group in the 1970s and early 80s that was an offshoot of the Black Panthers, Rookery Press is about to publish this collection of very interesting uh, documents. And so uh, the idea for this series is to look at primary source documents, writings themselves, the evidence, and learn how to think through and interpret them. Uh, so look out for that. Should be coming out uh, right away, and it's a very interesting collection of, of sources um, for uh, the Mudgeless. Um, we will be having um, a guest on uh, to talk about. Um, oh gosh, I've forgotten the uh, the the subject. Uh, well, just check out our most recent episode, which came out last week, which was on the Kafala labor system that has just been released. Um, people can learn about uh, about that and its history in labor migration and labor regimes uh, uh, regionally and globally. The similarities between the Gulf countries, uh, kind of use of this sponsorship uh, system and analogies that we can see in other neoliberal spaces uh, for controlling labor migration. So check that out on the much list. And the ultimate class on the Crusades. is this? That's right. Yes. The ultimate, the final class in the Crusading Society is this Saturday. Everyone's welcome to join. Go to www.adnanhussein.org slash courses to register for the Google Meet 930 
to 11 a.m. on Saturday. And we'll be, it's, there's no assigned readings. There's no specific topic, but what we're going to do is take stock of the course and how does medieval history, history of the Crusades relate to um, the present. I mean, I hope I've managed to draw some connections that might be of interest to people in the material that we've been discussing, but now let's reflect on it together about how this uh, history helps us understand our world today. Fantastic. Everybody go listen to Manhattan Serenade, Tommy Dorsey, and figure out why I keep playing it over and over again. Everybody who listens to this show, if you listen to Manhattan Serenade, you'll figure out why I keep listening to it. Joe in Norway. David, before we go to Joe, uh, can I just urge people to call their representatives in Congress and tell them to support the Social Security Expansion Act and then listen to Tommy Dorsey? Yes. What's the name of the song? Manhattan Serenade. There you go. It'll blow. It'll blow your mind. I promise you. You listen to the entire song. You go. Oh, okay. I thought I knew something. Now I know something more that I didn't know before. I can't tell you why. All right. Thank you all. It's a privilege. Thank you, Joe in Norway. Yes, in solidarity with my family and. In the Amish in Ohio, uh, I've pickled some cabbage. So I spiced it up a little, though. So this is a traditional pickling uh, crock and has a little ridge. I've shown this before, I believe. There's a little ridge for putting water in. Right. And how long will this take before it's ready? I think we're maximum going to go two weeks before it starts to get pilfered. doesn't it, tend to last, but it could go for six, a, six weeks, six months. They don't make a pressure fermenter. You, I, you've shown us how to work a pressure yeah. cooker, but they haven't figured out a way to pressure ferment oh, food. Well, this is sort of a pressure. So these are little clay pieces that weight, weight the cabbage down. And then a seal, watertight seal comes in. So then all the pressure builds and then the, the uh, excess gets uh, uh, the bubbles come out. And then over here, I did a quick, uh, chopped up some red cabbage with scallion, uh, mayonnaise, rice vinegar, and um, a little bit of sugar. That's about it. And what are you going to do with that? Uh, eat it as a side dish. Oh, okay. mm. It's nice to just snack on through the day. And are there any openings for office hours? Uh, there's a, a few primetime spots open. And then we've got a, a new, I'm not sure, a new member. I'm not sure if they want their name said, but they're going to be discussing art history and its revisions. A discussion about uh, George Bush's painting and the opening uh, of an exhibit as exhibit in, in Atlanta, the Atlanta History Center. So it should be interesting. Oh, okay. Uh, are we going to compare and contrast George W. Bush's art with Hunter Biden's? Yeah, how about comparing it to Hitler's painting? <laughs> <laughs> Let's end on that. Thank you, everybody.